Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. Title to our message this morning is How the Resurrection Changes Everything. And as you're turning to John 20, 11 through 18, please remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have lain him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word this morning, may we be like Mary once Jesus spoke to her, that our eyes would be open and we would see the Lord. Help us not to be blind to your son. Help us to not think that he is an ordinary man, some gardener wandering around. May you lift our hearts up and see the risen Christ and how his resurrection changes everything. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. It shouldn't surprise us that Mary Magdalene was the first one that came to the tomb. She was the one that Jesus dispossessed of seven demons. For those of you who have had experience with the occult, you understand that this would have been no ordinary deliverance. Mary would have been in absolute despair before the Lord had set her free. And so when she came to the cross on Good Friday and saw that all of her hopes were now being crucified to a tree. 
her whole world collapsed. Perhaps I think that we have become so familiar, some of us anyway, with the gospel story that we forget what was in the minds of Mary and the disciples. They didn't know Jesus was going to die, let, uh, much less that he was going to be raised from the dead. But this was God's plan from all eternity. Acts chapter 2, 23, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But this was hidden from her. And so in verse 11, we find her weeping. And this is not like a silent cry. She's not whimpering to herself. She's wailing. She's wailing loudly. And she stoops in and she sees that there were angels in the tomb. And they ask her in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? And she says, They have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have lain him. Though her grasp of the resurrection was mistaken, her response here is absolutely right, isn't it? If Jesus is gone... If Jesus perished on the tree never to rise again, then all there is is wailing, all there is is weeping, all there is is darkness and despair. Our only comfort in life and death is that we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But if Jesus didn't rise, all hope is gone. Life is absolutely meaningless. After she said those words to the angels in verse 14 and 15, she turns around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? These are the very first words that the resurrected Christ spoke. Why are you weeping? And Puritan Richard Sibbs says, these are the most fitting words that the risen Christ could have ever said. Why are you weeping? It's a good question after Christ's resurrection. What cause is there for weeping when Christ has risen? You realize that because Christ has risen, the world has been made right in seed form. And the seed of the serpent has been crushed. It cannot recover. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Our sins were nailed to the cross on Good Friday and they were buried in the grave and they will never be brought up against us again. Why would we ever weep again? Now, obviously, there's still room for weeping in this life, isn't there? But we don't weep as the world weeps. The world weeps without hope. There's another church that's meeting this morning in, in Nashville. Covenant Presbyterian Church. They're worshiping and weeping. They lost six of their loved ones in that school shooting. And the reason why they can worship and weep at the same time is because Christ rose from the dead. They know that this too shall be made right. They know that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. 
They know that Jesus will restore all that the locusts have eaten. They know that all that the world has taken away from them will be infinitely compensated for when they are transported into realms of everlasting glory. Halfway through verse 15, we read, Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. What a contrast here. Uh, Mary, blinded by human grief and passion, not knowing what the scriptures said, saw Jesus to be a nobody, a gardener. But Jesus spoke the most familiar word to her heart. He said, Mary. The second person of the Trinity, born in human flesh, called her by her name. Children, boys and girls, Imagine uh, for a moment in your mind uh, the most famous person you can think of or the most famous person that you like. What would happen if you were to show up at some airport or some restaurant and you saw that famous person and they saw you and they came to you and they called you by your name? What is the most famous person in the world compared to the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus isn't just vaguely familiar with us. Jesus knew Mary's name. Jesus knows all of the redeemed names. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Jesus was claiming ownership on Mary when he said, Mary, And at that moment, everything changed. Her wailing turned to worship. Her ashes turned to beauty. Dear congregation, that's what the resurrection of Christ accomplishes. It changes everything. In the grand scheme of things, nothing else matters. What you are anxious about, what you are losing sleep over, the things that keep you up at night, the things that trouble your heart in a hundred years will never concern you again. One thing alone will matter, that you belong to the everlasting kingdom of the risen Christ. Now, if you do belong to Christ Jesus by faith this morning, then this empty tomb means three vital things, and this is our outline. It means that we are now brothers of Christ. It means that we are now children of the Father. And it means we are now the abode of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at our first point. Because Christ was risen, we are now brothers of Christ. Now, it's, I think it seems clear in the text that Mary is so overwhelmed with joy that she is face to face with her Savior that she immediately grabs him. I think that's the implication. Look at verse 17, because this is how Jesus responds 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Some translations say, perhaps this is yours, Do not touch me. And this has caused a considerable amount of confusion because in, in just a few verses, in verse 27, he actually tells Thomas to touch him because Thomas needed proof that he was really risen. Here the issue doesn't seem to be merely touching Jesus. Jesus, what he was saying was, don't cling to me as if I'm staying in this world, for I'm going to ascend to the Father. See, Jesus could read Mary's heart. She thought that Jesus would now stay and never leave, but Jesus had a far greater plan in his ascension. He wants Mary to cling to him by faith in his ascension, where he will carry out everything that the prophets have foretold since the beginning of the world. Jesus then commissions her halfway through verse 17. But go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. Go tell my brothers. Where are his brothers? Where are his disciples? Why is Mary the only one that is here at the tomb? If you look at verse 19, you find them hiding behind locked doors because they were afraid of men. The world was turned upside down on Good Friday. Not only did it look like that the darkness had destroyed the Messiah, but these men failed Jesus utterly and perfectly. They all spoke boldly about their own abilities. They they, uh, said, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. But at his greatest trial, they all abandoned him. These were fair weather friends. When all things were well, when Jesus was shining, when miracles were being done, they would puff up their chests and and they would say, yeah, we're with that guy. And then when he was arrested as an outlaw, they all ran away. Peter denied him. After three years of Jesus feeding them, caring for them, discipling them, loving them, at his time of need, they all left him alone. The sheep were scattered. And so these post-resurrection words should shock you. Because what would you say if all your friends betrayed you at the time of greatest need? What would you say? Jesus said, go Tell my brothers. That's the first comfort we find in this passage. Brothers. Jesus calls them brothers. And this is the first time that Jesus directly calls his disciples brothers in the gospels. Elsewhere, it is implied. But here we see a progression of what Jesus calls the disciples. In the gospel of John, he calls them first servants, then friends, and now at the resurrection, brothers. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you uh, friends. But here, he says, brothers. What's changed? The resurrection. 
Uh, not that prior to the resurrection, the disciples couldn't be considered brothers. They surely were. But rather, at the resurrection, legally, before the throne room of God, they can be called brothers because the work of redemption has been complete. And that brings us to our first principle this morning. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we are now brothers and sisters of Christ. Because Jesus rose again from the dead, we are now brothers and sisters of Christ. You see, loved ones, at the resurrection, the transaction between God and sinner was complete. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, that's Good Friday, and raised for our justification, that's Resurrection Sunday. Justification is the work that makes us Christ's brothers and sisters. Justification, that glorious doctrine, it means that God pardons all of our sins and imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. That's why Jesus could treat his disciples so tenderly. Because the resurrection solved their greatest crisis. The alienation between them and God. Resurrection purchased justification. Now their sins were completely pardoned and righteousness was imputed to them, credited to their their account. On Easter morning, no doubt, someone here is, is saying in their heart of hearts, but I am unworthy. I'm unworthy to be Christ's brother. I'm unworthy to be Christ's sister because I am such a sinner. I have failed him so many times. Loved ones, I feel that weekly. I feel that daily. I feel that sometimes hourly. But don't you see what these disciples did. They, who knew Jesus better than anyone, they uh, deserted him, they denied him, they disbelieved him, and yet when Jesus rose from the dead, he cured them of all. My brothers, Jesus calls them. Yes, they were unworthy, and here's the truth about you, dear friend. You are unworthy, and so am I. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not... Show yourself worthy and Christ will save you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you are unworthy and only Christ can save you. When you first believed upon the risen Christ, that very moment you became a brother and sister of the Lord and Jesus forgot all of your sins just as he forgot the sins of the disciples. Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Children, boys and girls, do you ever have an idea in your head when you're laying on your bed, and then in the morning when you wake up, you forget it? It's the worst. Saturday nights are the worst. (laughs) My my message generally isn't done and I'm sitting there and my ideas are spinning in my head and so I end up getting up out of my bed like eight times and write something down because what happens if I fall asleep? I forget it. You see what happened here? Jesus 
died on the cross on Good Friday, and he fell asleep in the grave. And when he woke up, he forgot all of our sins. Jesus treats his unfaithful disciples like you and I with the utmost care. He forgets our offenses. Psalm 103.10 says he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So let's apply this truth that Jesus is our brother. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is your brother. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star, the second person of the Trinity is your brother. Think on Joseph's Brothers, when Joseph was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, how Joseph, though all of his brothers abused him and mistreated him and sold him into slavery, what did Joseph do when he was exalted to the right hand? He cared for them. He provided for them. He protected them. He lavished the best of Egypt upon them. He guaranteed their future prosperity. But Joseph was just a man. Your brother is the God-man. Jesus doesn't merely own Egypt, he owns the universe, he owns the cosmos, he owns Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and stardust and atoms and he owns all the demons in hell. That's your brother. There's no one in the world greater than he who has Christ as his brother. If Christ is your brother, if Christ is for you, who could be against you? Our brother is the son of God himself. That's our first point. Because Jesus rose again, we are now brothers and sisters of Christ. Secondly, because Christ has risen, we are now children of the Father. Halfway through verse 17, Jesus tells Mary, But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Again, we see how the resurrection fundamentally changes our relationship with God. Certainly, we see elsewhere that the Gospels um, have God be, be called our Father. He's the Father of believers. But here, Jesus puts um, God being His Father and God being our Father side by side, juxtaposed. Clearly, Jesus wants us to see that his resurrection has radically altered our status with God. God is now our Father. I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. That brings us then to our second principle. Because Jesus rose again, we are now children of the Father. And we need to see how we're a little different than We're a lot different. We're infinitely different than the way that Jesus is son of the Father. Jesus is son of the Father by nature. We are sons and daughters of the Father by the grace of adoption. 
Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the same essence as the Father. He, he is God's unique, never-to-be-duplicated Son. The Nicene Creed says that He is God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. So we are not of the same essence as the Father and the Son. They are eternal and uncreated. We live in time and we're created. They are infinite. We are finite. They are self-existent. We are dependent. They are infinitely holy. We are sinful. But don't you see, that's just it. If God already had an eternal son who loved him, who never sinned, who Proverbs 8.30 says was daily his delight, who was rejoicing before him always, why would God the Father ever adopt sinful, rebellious, treacherous children like us? Don't you realize that when God adopted us as his sons, that he made us co-heirs with Christ? Co-heirs. He gave us the same status of inheritance as his natural born, infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely lovely, infinitely excellent son. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Because God made us his father, we have the same inheritance as Jesus Christ himself. That's how the shorter catechism puts it. Listen to it. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Why would God ever do that for sinners like you and I? See, we cannot say that God adopted us because we deserved it, because we were a little bit better than our neighbor, because we reformed our life because we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. If God gave us what we deserve, even for the sins that we committed this morning, we would everlastingly perish. Scripture says that if you commit one sin, you're guilty of the whole law of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. No, God did not adopt us because of who we are. He adopted us because of who he is. First, John 4, 8 says that God is love. God is the fountain of love. He is the ocean of love. And from all eternity, he freely and graciously chose to love and have pity on his adopted children. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Dear friends, what greater comfort could you possibly have in your life than to know that God is your Father? What would He ever withhold from you? He's already given you His own Son. 
If God did not get, if God did not spare his own son, but graciously given up, up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all other things? Consider how this affects every prayer that you will ever pray. I think we go reluctantly to the throne of grace to pray because we secretly think that God is holding out on us. Listen to what Puritan Richard Sibbs says here when we pray to this Father. When we pray, we shall either receive what we ask for or else we shall have that which is better. He is a wise Father. He answereth not always according to our wills, but always according to our good. Think of that, loved ones. Because God is your Father, every prayer that you make, every request that you bring before the throne, in the name of Jesus, according to the will of God, will be given to you, or else something better will be given to you. That's what it means, as the Catechism says, to have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Does God ever say no to His natural Son, Jesus Christ? So too with you. He will not say no. He, he may say not yet. He may say I have something better. But when we pray in Christ's name, he always loves to bless his children. And so because God is our father, we have every encouragement to go to him and lay our hearts bare. But we must remember that not everyone can call God their father. Those who do not have Christ as their brother do not have God as their father. You see, there are only two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of Christ, whose father is God Almighty, and the kingdom of the devil. And all human beings belong to one of those two kingdoms. There's not a third kingdom. Everyone either belongs to Christ and therefore has God as their father or else they are a child of the devil. There's no neutrality. There's no opting out. So the question this morning is, is which kingdom do you belong to? Who is your father? I would just plead with you this morning, if you are not a Christian, what on earth is stopping you? How has your father, the devil, treated you thus far? Do you like being in chains, in spiritual chains? Do you like having guilt and shame and condemnation heaped upon you? Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to have a father in heaven that you can trust and love? Don't you want a father in heaven where you hear these words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. then come to this Father through the risen Christ. The scripture says that all who receive Christ, who believe on his name, he gives them the right to become the children of God. Brings us to our final point this morning. Because Christ has risen... We are now the abode or the home of the Holy Spirit.
Let's consider what Jesus said here about his ascension. Halfway through verse 17, he says, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. I am ascending. I'm going to ascend. Now, this wasn't an additional ascension that was going to happen. He's talking about the ascension 40 days from now. But he mentions it here because his ascension is a vital part of the good news that he wants delivered to his disciples. You see, Jesus' resurrection and his ascension means that he has taken ownership of the world. Consider the myriad of benefits that come from Jesus' ascension. I actually think that this is one of the most underappreciated doctrines in Christendom. Let me just give you five. Jesus ascended so that he would be given a name above every other name, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. Jesus ascended so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus ascended so that he could put all enemies under his feet, Psalm 110, 1. Jesus ascended so that he could make continual intercession for us before the throne of God, Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is making continual prayers for you. Jesus ascended so that he could prepare a place for us in heaven, John 14.1 and 2. My Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? But there's something even more comforting and something more central to John's gospel regarding Jesus' ascension. Let's turn back to John 16. This is where Jesus had gathered his disciples in the upper room before his death, and he's telling them what's about to take place. John chapter 16, halfway through verse 4, right under that subtitle, Jesus is speaking. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. That's the ascension. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I ascend. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, Jesus ascending means that he would send us the helper. Who is the helper? The Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus said, this is to our advantage. If he doesn't ascend, the Holy Spirit doesn't come. But if he does ascend, the Holy Spirit would be sent. And so what this ascension means is the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. And that brings us then to our third principle. Because Jesus ascended into heaven, we are now the abode of the Holy Spirit. It's, don't think of it that the Holy Spirit wasn't given before this. The Old Testament saints needed the saving work of the Holy Spirit just as much as we do. However, whereas in the Old Testament, 
God's special presence was, was in Jerusalem, and then it was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat. But now that Christ has died and risen from the dead, the Holy Spirit now dwells in a most special way within every single believer. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And more than that, that means that all three members of the Trinity abide in us. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Who do they come in? The person of the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, the chief blessing of the gospel is not forgiveness of sins. As glorious as that is, it's not imputed righteousness. It's not any other benefit. The chief blessing of the gospel is that we get God himself. All of those other things are means to bring us into possession of almighty God. And we chiefly get God in the person of the Holy Spirit when Jesus ascended into heaven. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards says it. The sum of the blessings that Christ sought by what he did and suffered in the work of redemption was the Holy Spirit. The sum of the blessings that Jesus sought for was the Holy Spirit. Thus is the affair of our redemption constituted. The Father provides and gives the Redeemer, and the price of redemption is offered to him. The Son is the Redeemer who gives the price and also is the price offered. And the Holy Spirit is the grand blessing obtained by the price offered, and he is bestowed on the redeemed. The Holy Spirit in his indwelling presence, his influences and fruits, is the sum of all grace, holiness, comfort, and joy, or in one word, of all spiritual good Christ purchased for men in this world. I know that's a lot. Think of every benediction that opens the epistles. What do you see in every one? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Where's the Holy Spirit? I thought he was equal in power and authority and glory as the other two persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the grace and peace. Grace and peace aren't gases or vapors that come down from heaven and clothe us. The grace and peace is the Holy Spirit. When Christ ascended into heaven, we have every spiritual good that we need in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now God is your God in the person of the Spirit. Now the Father and the Son dwell in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's nothing more practical than this. Think about the day of your death whether that be many years from now or just hours from now. Consider how knowing this will affect that moment. What will bring you comfort in that moment as you're gasping for breath? More money? 
Would it comfort you in that last moment when your organs are failing that you had 10,000 worlds at your disposal? Would it comfort you if the news was all about your death dying and the whole world mourned for you, but you did not have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Would that comfort you? You see, this is what will sustain you. In those last moments, as your body lies wasting away, you can say, God is my God. Christ, who is God, is my brother. God is my Father, and I have both of them in me by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. My life is no longer mine. The world is no longer mine. I must lose everything on earth, but I gain the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This God is my God forevermore, world without end. Bring it on. So let me charge you this morning, loved ones. After Jesus gave Mary her commission, we read what Mary did with it. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That's our charge this morning. Go and announce to the world that Christ has risen from the dead. Go and announce that Christ is willing to be their brother. Go and announce that God can justify them, that he can pardon them of all of their sins, and he can impute the righteousness of Christ to them if they believe. Go and announce that to the world that Christ has risen from the dead, and God can be their father, that almighty Jehovah is willing to adopt them into his family, that they need not be sons of the devil any longer. Go and announce to the world that because Christ ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has been sent. And He can bring the triune God to dwell in you. That they no longer have to be given over to sin and guilt, but that the Helper, the Comforter, can make all things new. Go, loved ones, and announce to the world that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed everything. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Christ our brother in heaven, Holy Spirit our comforter in heaven, all praise to you. That you have conspired since before time was invented, that we would be brothers of Christ and sons and daughters of you, Father, and temples of you, Holy Spirit. Come and dwell in us now, overflow in us now that we might be megaphones to this lost and dying world, that there is hope, that there is comfort to be found in life and death. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.